It is a joy once again to be back. I have high school age kids that wanted to join me today, but getting them out of bed was going to prove either I show up late with them or I get here on time without them. So we made a family decision for the latter, which I think was probably uh, to the benefit of all. So um, it's their spring break. So, you know, somehow spring break extends to church. I'm not exactly sure, but... Um, we'll have that conversation when I get home. <laughs> so anyway, we are. We're in Luke this morning. Um, the passage is in your bulletin. If you want to open your Bibles, we're at the end of Luke 9. Luke 9, starting in 43, the second part of 43. And while we're finding that, I want you to, in your mind, you can even write it down if you want to. You don't need to. I want you to think of three people that sort of embody uh, a particular set of characteristics, because I think it's sometimes helpful, rather than thinking generalities, to think of specifics. So here's what I want you to think of. Spend a little bit of time. Think about someone in your life who you thought of as a really, really good teacher. It could be from elementary school, high school, college, currently. Someone who you sat under, who you learned great things from, and if someone said, who was the best teacher you ever had? I want you to have that person's a name and face in mind. The second name and face I want you to have in mind is someone that you would consider a great person. Right? Whatever you want to, however you want to inform what that looks like. I want you to think of your great person outside of the Bible or even church history. There's, I guarantee there's some church history nerds in here, so this is going to be hard for those of you. It's like, oh, wait, I have to think of someone great outside of the Bible and outside of church history, so I, want, I for what I just as a thought exercise, I want you to think of like in terms of someone you consider a great person, politically or financially or however else, but outside of church history, and specifically the Bible. And the third person I want you to think of is someone who just embodies what a child is, somewhere under 12 years old, right? It might be one of your own children, it might be but just some mental image or name, a face of what a child is. And these three things will essentially become our three points of the sermon. I didn't really mean to do it that way, but the more I think about it is uh, we're going to see in this passage uh, an illustration of Jesus' teaching. We're going to see the disciples argue about who's greatest, and we're going to see Jesus respond to that argument by bringing a child into the uh, illustration. And I think having these names and these faces in mind will be helpful to us. So let's, let's read our passage, and then we'll jump in. Most of our text will start with a paragraph at the midpoint of 43, so we call this 43b. It's a good reminder that these numbers are afterthoughts. They're helpful. They are not um, inspired, So, um, nor are really the paragraphs, for that matter, because in the, in the original, they were all run together because paper was so expensive, they just kept scribbling everything as close as they could get it. Uh, the words are inspired, though, and um, so we'll jump right in at 43b. Uh, Spirit, help us uh, to understand and to apply your word. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. An argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and 
put him by his side, and he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So we have not uncharacteristic to the Gospels generally and specifically to Luke, two sort of little glimpses into the ministry of Jesus here, right? It's not even entirely clear how related they are to each other, how related they are to what comes ahead and what entirely related to what comes behind. We'll get just two little glimpses of Jesus and what we're going to do is spend some time thinking this morning. What do these passages tell us about Jesus? And in response to what they tell us about Jesus, what do they tell us about ourselves? So who is it that you thought of as a teacher? And I hope if I ask my high school kids right now who their favorite teacher is, they're going to say the teacher who lets them watch movies more times than not. Right? That's not what I hope you as adults thought of. Right? The easiest teacher or the easiest A or whoever you learned the least from, but they were cool because they let you get a lunch early or whatever else it was. I hope that you thought of like the actual sort of practice of teaching, right? the actual methodology. Right? The fancy word is the... The pedagogy of the teaching. And my guess is if you thought now, okay, what is it about that teacher that made them such a good teacher? You would have words in mind like clarity. They were very clear. They were easy to understand. They were maybe even inspiring. Like they, they, they didn't merely just sort of clearly explain things, but they kind of made you want to like the subject matter as much as they did. And, you, and it's sort of like there were these multiple things about them being a really good teacher. I was thinking about this question for myself as I was preparing, and I thought of my senior high school English teacher. And she was an incredibly good teacher. I didn't even realize at the time, because I was an 18-year-old kid, how good of a teacher she was. When I really realized how good of a teacher she was was when I went to college my freshman year, and I knew I was surrounded by really smart kids who could not write a five-paragraph essay. And I was like, well, this is, like, really easy, like, my teacher made me do like 30 of these last year. I know how to do this. And I realized this isn't, it was a good bit of humility, which at that age I wasn't very humble. But it was like, wow, I'm not good at this because I'm good at this. I'm really good at this because my teacher was really good at this and helped me learn how to do this and helped me think through this. And not only that, but the things that she had us read and the way that she inspired us, it was, she was a really, really good teacher. After all of those thoughts, I tried to remember her name, sadly. So my, my best teacher ever, this something, those of you who are teachers, or the, there's something symbolic, right? Then I thought, I think it's Mrs. Rhodes. I literally this morning texted my brother and my high school best friend who I hardly talk with and said, who was our senior English teacher? My high school best friend, both of them responded back, Miss Tomlinson. I thought, oh, wait, okay, it's not my senior teacher I'm even thinking of. It's my junior teacher. So I had the wrong name in the wrong grade, the most important teacher of my life. I couldn't remember anything about her. And after going back and forth with my high school best friend has got sort of a, he's a, he's a medical doctor now. He's got, I knew he would get it. He's got that mind of just, he remembers every detail. He'll call me out of the blue and just tell me some random story from when we were 12 that you're just like, okay, he's just that guy. And even he struggled to remember it was Miss Cornelson. And as soon as he said it, I was like, yes, Miss Cornelson, the best teacher I ever had. It took me like a half day to remember her name and the grade that she taught. <laughs> Something symbolic about that, I think, as far as the, the, the role of humility of being a good teacher. But my point is this, even the very best teachers, 
the reason that we're drawn to them is because of the life-changing helpfulness that they can be, because of something about the clarity in the way that they communicated. Now, contrast that with Jesus as a teacher. It's a really interesting thing to think about. Have you ever thought about that before, right? So I would think, oh, the very best teacher, and when I'm teaching, my best is when almost everyone's understand me all the time, and there's very little confusion in the room. Yet when Jesus teaches, there's often confusion in the crowd. Have you ever thought about that before? It's, it's an interesting thought to have. So I'm thinking, wait, am I supposed to teach like Jesus and like kind of tell stories that no one quite understands and confuse? And even my close friends come and say, please tell us what you're talking about. We don't understand. And in John at one point, Jesus, he's, it, it, where is it? It's John 16. Jesus starts to say, and the disciples are like, oh, now you're speaking uh, plainly, not with figurative speech. Thank you. And you have other examples in the Gospels of the disciples coming up to Jesus after parables and saying, help us with this. Like, we don't know what to do with this. And Jesus' own explanation is not all that helpful too because he quotes Isaiah, remember, and says, oh, this is sort of so those who have ears can understand and those, like, it's almost like it's deliberately confusing to certain people. Not an attribute we would think of as being a good teacher. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to think about. And here we have, in this little story, we have something similar going on. And here it's even stranger and supernatural, I believe. So while they're all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus takes advantage of this opportunity of the crowd marveling at him to teach his disciples what's coming next. And he says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 43, but they did not understand this saying. We just stop right there. This one doesn't seem to be unclear because Jesus is sort of telling a parable or kind of being deliberately unclear. If anything, this particular proposition that Jesus is proclaiming, he seems to be very clear, I really want you to understand this one. Right? Let it sink into your ears. Really, really get this one. Here's, about what, here's a, what is about to happen. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So I, I, I'm just sort of making a broader... I find it interesting that Jesus, who we would all proclaim would be the very best of teachers, often was not accompanied by clarity of understanding, but it was because it was his choice to do it that way because of the gospel and what he was proclaiming and his own purposes. Here we have another situation where we have the disciples not understanding Jesus, but it doesn't seem to be because Jesus is, at least in the statement itself, uttering a parable or something that's dense or incomprehensible. He seems to be very easy to understand the subject matter. He's going to be handed over, right? It's, if that's all you had, you don't exactly know what that means or who's going to be handing him over or if is that going to be like, there's no, it, you don't get from that proclamation alone anything about a resurrection or even about a death for that matter. You just have, he will be handed, he will be delivered into the hands of men. So what's going on here? Why are the disciples not able to follow this? Coming into the text, it's always a good thing to do, um, my initial thought coming into the text, and it's still what I think is the case and what is going on, and I will we'll quickly talk about some commentators have some, there's some conversations about this. I interpret it supernaturally, right? They didn't understand this saying 
and it was concealed from them. And I took that to be by the spirit, by God, for whatever purposes that they, that the spirit and Jesus didn't yet want them to get it, which is actually a fairly sympathetic thing for Luke to throw out, right? Wasn't because they were stupid. Wasn't because they were just so sinful. It was sort of like, it was God's plan for them to not fully get it until later on, post-resurrection, Luke does say that Jesus opened their eyes to the scriptures. So there's almost like a, a sense of scales being put on the disciples' eyes. Luke's a little bit unique in this. All the gospel writers talk about the confusion of the disciples, but Luke's the only one who sort of goes out of his way twice to say this was concealed from them. And then Luke also, I think, deliberately comes later in 24 to say, Jesus opened their eyes. So it's like they were blinded to this truth about the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, Jesus lifts that blindness from them. So then they can understand. We could call it the progression of revelation, right? That it sort of makes sense that before it all happens, it's not easy to understand what he's talking about. And after the resurrection, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I can now understand these Old Testament texts in ways that I couldn't previous. Some commentators don't want to go supernatural here, and they want to say, well, there's some, the concealing is of their own hearts and their own sinfulness, or their just inability to understand because they have a vision of Jesus as the Messiah and doing whatever else. And so I want to be honest that I, I, I'm, I'm not completely persuaded only because of the lifting from Jesus later, but it, I could be wrong on this, obviously. It's not entirely clear, right? If the passage, if Luke wanted it to be entirely clear, he would have said it was concealed to them by the Spirit. He just said it was concealed to them. So we're not exactly sure why. But they didn't get it. I think it's a nice little detail here, right, that they were afraid to ask him about it. A nice little detail, right? It's not merely that Jesus makes a statement that's very clear. They didn't get it because it was concealed for them so that they might not perceive it, right? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, uh, a, a clause there that actually is like a purpose clause. Um, they did not, it was concealed for the purpose of them not perceiving it, which is, I think, a, an argument for there's, there's, there's something going on with why this is being concealed. But either way, it's like they were aware that they didn't get it, but yet they were afraid to ask him about it which is not the case all the time. Other times, they're very clear to ask Jesus, hey, tell us more, please explain what's going on. And maybe they were afraid for understandable reasons, like, well, that sounds dark, negative, and scary. I don't want to ask about that. I don't want to know anything more about that. Um, I, I think who knows, there's a lot of things going on here, but for what's coming right afterwards, perhaps one of the reasons that they're afraid to ask him about it is they're afraid that if I reveal that I don't know what he's talking about, then all of a sudden I'm not going to be thought of as the greatest disciple because that's the very next thing they're going to argue about. There's a little bit of internal, right, pride of, wow, we're all, we're all stupefied right now, but if I open my mouth, every one of those guys will know that I don't know what he's talking about. And so I'm just going to sort of group think here and act like I know what he's talking about because I'm convinced they all do too and none of them understand and all of them are scared to ask. That's saying something about Peter, right? Peter never seems afraid to ask. 
Peter never seems afraid to say anything that's on his mind, right? It just sort of, if it's on his mind, it kind of comes. See, Peter doesn't ever seem to have silent thoughts, right? If he has a thought, it just kind of balances out. And sometimes Jesus praises him for it. And sometimes Jesus gets on to him for it. But you kind of just, the blank slate of Peter just sort of, it just climbs out. But in this case, even Peter doesn't understand and is afraid to ask. So let's move into the second part. We're just wanting to move through the text, and we're going to, we're going to at the end, sort of draw out three, three implications, applications. People that do, like, biblical studies on the high level, and particularly people who are not evangelical, not conservatives, love to spend most of their time talking about, you know, oh, this was inserted here, and this was redacted here, and this was changed here, and this person obviously didn't write this, and this was picked up from this, and whatever else. And, and when you do that, you end up sort of spending a lot of time trying to say, well, you know, uh, what should be there and what shouldn't be there, rather than what we want to do, and that is just read God's word as the authority and let it stand above us. Um, the greatest fear in that sort of, um, there's so many things that are very, very dangerous about that sort of Thomas Jefferson um, thinking about the scripture that we are a sudden now uh, a judge over God's word, over what's good and what's bad or what's in and what's out or what should have authority and what should not, uh, which places us in a very scary man-centered position. But what we do know from the text is the next story immediately that the spirit wants us to read is, Right after their confusion, right after them being afraid to ask, they are now arguing about who's the greatest. They all become Muhammad Ali all of a sudden. I'm the greatest. And it's interesting. It's at least worth asking, like, well, why now? Right? It happens other times in the ministry of the disciples as well. But why did this happen right now? And I think part of it shows something about our human nature and our frailty that in those moments when we sort of run up against our limitations and our lack of fully understanding is when we're sometimes the most tempted to respond with ignorant hubris. Right? I'm the greatest. Obviously, the context is something like, and we see this in other places in the, in, in the Gospels, of... We are the followers of the king, the Messiah. He is going to be presenting and, and establishing a kingdom. There's going to be some benefit of us in that kingdom, specifically in relation to those who are rejecting Jesus and turning away from Jesus. So there's some part of them thinking, wow, we are, we are with Jesus. He's going to be establishing his kingdom. And when he establishes the kingdom, I wonder what my role is going to be wouldn't be too dissimilar from you know, someone who jumps onto the campaign as a campaign manager for some little-known politician. And then at some point you start worrying and, and curious, and if this person wins, what will my role be in the administration? What will, will I get this spot or this spot? Will I get to be in charge of this or this? And it's not entirely selfish, although it's somewhat selfish because you're, you're working to try to establish this person, but you're almost sort of wondering, oh, what's going to bounce back to me about that? How's that going to reward me. That seems to be what's going on here. It's, there's a sense of which of us is going to have the greatest position. It's interesting because there's an argument among them, but 47 makes it clear that Jesus is not a part of the conversation. He, he knows internally the reasoning of their hearts, which we see other times 
in the gospel. So Jesus might have been away and the disciples are, are talking about this and Jesus comes in and he knows what they're talking about. And every time in the, the gospels, I think this is true, I think I read this, but every time I can think of certainly where Jesus sort of perceives what's in someone's heart and then he responds to it, it's almost always a correction, right? So every time it's a correction of someone says, well, you know, um, they're thinking in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus sees what they're thinking and says, yeah, you're right to say that. And this is who I am. I am doing this through the power of my father. In this case, he sees the reasoning of their hearts and he's going to correct that. His correction this time comes in the form of an illustration. So when I think of my great man, or great person, I wanted to deliberately say that, although I did think of a man, didn't have to be a man. I did think of Thomas Jefferson. I've got a weird fascination with Thomas Jefferson in, in many different ways. Um, probably because as a trained philosopher, he's the only president, probably the only real political leader of the modern times, or you know, modern, uh, who's a philosopher, who could rightly be called a philosopher. There's so many things. I find him incredibly interesting, incredibly horrific, um, all the way across the spectrum. Um, so it's like they're arguing about this, right? Who's, who's great and what does it mean to be great? Is it power? Is it wealth? Is it influence? All, no doubt all of these things are in mind. And Jesus' lesson when he brings the child into the midst in verse 48 is he took a child and he put them by his side and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who will be great. Let's talk about the end of it first, because that's in relation to this greatness theme. The disciples are arguing, who's greater? Who's going to be more important? Who's going to get the higher position in the kingdom? And Jesus knows their thoughts. And essentially the lesson is, he who is least among you is the one who will be great. In uh, Mark, the, the same exact sort of story is told with the child and with the disciples arguing. And in the Mark version in Mark 9, you have Jesus also throwing in this sort of, he who is last will be first and he who is first will be last, right? So you can see how they, they couple, they're similar. We don't get that one in Luke here. It's probably an indication that this is the type of lesson that Jesus taught multiple times, right? And so the disciples are, are each drawing from sources of various times when he said. Uh, but the, the child being pulled into the myths and being used as an object lesson is something that was very memorable to the disciples. And, and it obviously would have been. So let's think for a little bit. What does this mean? He who is least among you is the one who is great. I don't think that it's a playbook for greatness, right? You're arguing that you should be great. Here's the way to win. Here's the way to really be great. The way to really be great is to be the least. In other words, that's a sort of feigned humility, isn't it, right? It's not a real humility. It's not a real, I am least, it's a, I am least until I can be great, <laughs> right? It's a whole difference. It's flipping it on its head. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind is sort of a, hey, here's how you really win the game, right? You really win the game of power and prestige by trying really hard to, to be fake least. If you can be fake least for a long, long time, all your life, in this kingdom, you can be great. 
And you can lord that greatness over all the other people. How fun will that be? All these people who thought they were great, now they get to grovel at your feet because they're least, right? That's not, we all know, that's not in congruence with the gospel's teaching. So it's not a blueprint for how to achieve greatness nearly as much as it is an abolishing of the entire notion, right? It's, it's to say, no, 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 all are great or all are least, but the whole point is not to say, hey, here's the plane that we typically think of least and great, and I'm just going to tell you it's like this. It's no, 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 we're all the same. This particularly makes sense in the kingdom Whenever, if we understand the gospel fully, no one in the kingdom is going to be tempted to think, I earned my spot here better than you earned your spot here. In our earthly nature now, when we hear of whoever, I think of Ted Bundy, right, was a serial killer, who apparently believed in Jesus. That's what I, I don't studied it in great detail, but I think that, I think that's the story. Now there's a part of me that thinks, I don't know if that's true or not, and, you know, whatever else. But when I get to heaven, I'm not going to have that thought. If Ted Bundy's in heaven, I'm never going to have the thought of, oh, yeah, I kind of deserve to be here more than you, (laughs) right? I'm going to have only the thought of, I'm here by the grace of Jesus. Ted Bundy's here by the grace of Jesus and everyone else here. Mother Teresa, good to see you. You're here by the grace of Jesus, it's actually something kind of cool even in the Gospels itself. And this was something that a commentator helped me see. That as many times as the disciples missed it previous to the resurrection, we never get told that after the resurrection all the way through Acts. It's like once Jesus rose from the dead, they, didn't, they no longer argued about who was going to be the greatest. You have some opposition of, of some important things in Acts about how they should do ministry, but you don't have any more. Once the resurrection occurs, this whole motif of the disciples fighting for who's greater disappears. It's a really beautiful point, isn't it? It's, something, it's really nice. It's like, wow, once the gospel became clear, their need to be made great was completely eradicated. So then my question for myself is, well, then what's my excuse, right? Because I'm on the same side of the gospel as the disciples. And if anything, I have even more ability because I have the full revelation of Scripture and I still struggle with wanting to be thought of as great. I still struggle. People in my own church, brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm joined in membership with in the local body of judging them harshly because they preach longer than me or because their doctrine isn't... I mean, we're talking about the minutia, minutia of something that I think is important, but they disagree on a very slight technicality, and then I think, well, I'm somehow better than that person. Yeah, just This passage has been really helpful for me as I've been meditating on it, of exposing some some... Some pride, and as a mid-40s man, I'm much less prideful than I was in my mid-30s, and when I was much less prideful than I was in my mid-20s, there's something about age that beats us up a little bit and helps us with some humility, which, thank the Lord for that. But I still, this passage is exposed for me. Wow, Lord, help me. Help me to combat these areas in which I want to be great. I want to be recognized as great. I want people to think of me as great. And... 
I judge myself against others, how great I am compared to how great I think they should be. And they go, oh man, I want to get the gospel in the same way that the disciples get the gospel here so that it can beat that out of my head and allow me to have the humility that I believe the passage is calling me towards. So we've got a good teacher, we've got someone who's great, and then we have this child. When I think of a child, I just thought, what is the stereotypical child that I come into my mind? And it's, um, it's an easy one for me to picture. It's Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone. That's the child, right? There's this little kid in my church right now. I actually volunteer for the children's ministry every now and then. And he kind of has this very quintessential child thing. And I finally picked up. He looks like Macaulay Culkin. Now, there's probably something exposing there about me being white and Midwestern, right? Because there's more blondies where I come from in Oklahoma than there are in the West Coast and whatever else. But that's what I picture when I think of a quintessential child. So in my mind, Jesus brings Macaulay Culkin from home alone into the midst and says, Hey, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Obviously, the, the, Jesus knows what they're arguing about. He wants to teach them a, a lesson about humility. He wants to combat their prideful argument about greatness. And he's going to do this by bringing a child and saying, whoever receives this child receives me. There's a couple of things of interest going on here. Uh, the first one, uh, one, of, one of the things that I do when I'm when I'm looking at a new passage, um, I picked this up about the last five or 10 years, is I will sort of deliberately stay away from the superstar pastors. And I'll just go to like YouTube and um, my, my podcast. And I'll just sort of find random churches preaching on a passage. Just see what they do with it, right? It's been a really fun exercise. The fact of the matter is the vast majority of the times they're really good. It's actually been really encouraging to my hypercritical theological mind to realize the vast majority of the churches that are the kinds that are out producing content, trying to get people, are, are actually good evangelical. Like, you know, I'm just listening to one sermon here and there, so I'm not going to say much about maybe their, their polity or whatever else, but they're doing a pretty good job with the text normally. This particular passage, whoever receives a child in my name receives me, well, let me just ask it as a question. There was a kind of church who tended to talk about this passage more than the evangelical sort of even fundamentalist strain. And it was sort of like Anglican, Catholic, high church, some even probably a much more liberal. And it sort of makes sense. In other words, this passage really resonates with someone who might be tempted towards what we could call a social gospel. Right, so you know the social gospel is the social is is the sense of well, I mean, yeah, kind of. You need to tell people that they need Jesus, but we don't really talk about sin. We don't really talk about repentance. And what we really want to do is we convert the gospel into a works-oriented. We care for the people in our culture who need to be cared for. That's the social gospel. So you can almost understand how this is an attractive ring to it to a social gospel type. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives who sent me. If this passage was all that we had of the New Testament, we would have a very different gospel than what we have. This is why we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture, obviously. Because if this passage was all that we had, we might think, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it just means go out and be, be nice to kids. 
And if you tack on that all the other t- places, particularly in the G- teachings of Jesus, that talks about social goods, uh, giving blankets, giving food, you could very quickly and easily understand why social gospel churches get where they get because they start to think, oh, this is what it means to receive Jesus. Being nice to kids, giving food to homeless, caring for people who need to be cared for. So what's happened? What happened historically over the the, the church, particularly in America, the Western church, is that was noticed as an error, right? And there was a response by fundamentalism. There was the right response. They said, no, 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 we cannot lose the gospel for this social gospel. But in times there was almost an overreaction as we inherited in our evangelical tradition to say, well, the you social gospel people are out there loving kids and needy people. We're going to stand for the gospel and we're going to care for people by giving them the gospel, but we might not be all that interested in blankets and food and social goods, right? So there's, there's a potential for an overreaction. It's actually what kind of brought in um, in the, 19, the early 1950s and 60s, evangelicalism tried to sort of walk that balance in between the liberalism and the, and the fundamentalism on both sides to say, no, 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 we need to really treat the gospel as important, but the gospel has implications for how we interact with our world and love those around us who are, are not believers. I don't know why I did all that. It wasn't really necessary, but it's helpful for us to realize when we're thinking about this passage, whoever receives a child in my name, it's not a social gospel mandate, but it also can't just be ignored by saying, no, 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 we know what the gospel is, so let's just ignore this teaching of Jesus. And the important point, and I think the helpful part exegetically is, in my name. Right? In my name. Whoever receives this child, in my name. Whoever feeds the poor, in my name. Whoever helps this social issue, in my name, is doing something on behalf of me. Don't want to do that to the exclusion of preaching forgiveness of sins, repentance, and belief in Jesus. But we don't want to think that somehow preaching forgiveness of sins and repentance of Jesus doesn't also have implications for needy children in our community. It's a hard balance to walk, though, isn't it? It's just, I mean, it's, it's something I think that we're in, intended as churches, as individuals, to sort of struggle through how to think through this. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Really nice Christological claim here, isn't it? Another little hint of... Jesus being more than just a prophet, that Jesus, if you receive Jesus, you are receiving the Father. It's a, a, a really good place for us to hang our hat on the sola of belief in Jesus. It's the only way to the Father. It's the one thing that we are viewed as, as Christians, as being most judgmental or most harsh, is that we believe there's only one path. There's only one way. It's the one thing that we cannot apologize for ever. We can be kind and we can be gracious in the way we communicate it. But at the end of the day, we're telling people, you cannot know God apart from faith in Jesus. And for me to tell you anything else would be a mistreatment. For me to try to give you faith in something that's untrue would be an unkind thing for me to do. 
So we get a little glimpse of that in this passage. Let's do three applications very quickly. And they're all under one heading, and they're all about humility. Um, Various levels of humility. Uh, The first one is epistemological humility, meaning it's a fancy word. It just means we need this passage because we can resonate with the disciples. Or This passage is to remind us how we can often not understand things and just get things wrong sometimes. So we need to carry with us a humility about the possibility of us being wrong. My guess is you're going to have a members meeting tonight, and I've been involved in many members meetings of many different churches. If we as Christians came into our members meetings all with a little bit, 10% more epistemological humility, those member meetings would generally go much differently. Because what tends to happen is those of us who have strong opinions, of which I am usually one of them, tends to communicate my strong opinions without much humility of where I might be wrong. Because I'm fully convinced that I'm right. And I, therefore, am fully convinced that you're wrong because you don't agree with me because I'm fully convinced that I'm right. And what I think we learned from this passage is from the disciples is, you know what, there are times we just don't quite get it. And we might even think that we got it, but we just don't got it. So add that as a category. So I watched a four-minute video uh, for whatever reason about um, racial reparations in the United States, and they had Cornell West and John McWhorter, which are two you know, guys on the different ends of the spectrum, both leading voices in African-American um, discussions on the matter. And they both said something very similar. They both said, we like these discussions with each other, even though they're, 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 they're both Ivy League professors, um, because we both have very strong opinions, but we both recognize there are places that we could be wrong. It was such a cool little thing just to see like this, this kind of common decency to one another and sort of kind of working at this, this very thorny political issue, even though they come from very different perspectives. But they both said it. They both kind of proclaimed, I enjoy this conversation with this person who I disagree with because we both have an understanding that we could be wrong on certain aspects, even though we're both paid to give you our opinions. So let's try to practice that. If that's obviously not the whole passage. Passage also just talks about just kind of what we might call social humility, right? It's the whole point of this, I am greater than you from the disciples. No, 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 there is no such thing. We're all little people, or we're all very important people. We're all the same. As illustrated by this child, we're all like the child. We should be reminded of that in our own efforts throughout our days that we fight our own senses of entitlement or our own senses of power and importance. But the final bit of humility is not ours at all, is it? It's, it's actually the most important part of the passage. It's the most important part of the Bible. And it's the humility that Jesus is talking about by being handed over, right? That ultimately points to his death and obviously leads to his resurrection. You think about when Jesus says, they don't, they don't take my life from me, I lay it down. The humility that Jesus, in the face of the disciples arguing about who's the greatest, right after Jesus has exercised this incredible, like, hey, you talk about humility, the God-man is going to lay his life down for you jokers who are fighting amongst yourselves about who's the greatest. That's humility. 
That's the humility of the gospel. And it's, it's so hard for us to grasp. It's so hard for us to understand. This actually brings in that, that epistemological humility. And it's so easy to start majoring on the minors of Christian faith, isn't it? It's so easy to start really getting interested in end times or whatever else. And anything that's in the Bible is worth our study. And it's worth us spending time thinking about it. But sometimes we take for granted the simple story of the gospel. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's sort of like stuff they teach in children's ministry. Oh, we should never get over the gospel. We should never get over the fact that Jesus gives us this image of the absolute best humility, the God-man going to the grave, defeating death for us, so we could share in his righteousness, even though all we bring to the table is dirty rags of faithless activities. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for that extreme example of humility. And may we not major on the minors. Help us to keep the gospel central in our focus as we lead our families and as we even talk to one another after church today, that the gospel would be central, the humility of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. Hmm. I would pray to that end. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Help us with that exact thing. Help us to be humble. Help us to love one another well. Help us to uh, think about our community and our world well and how we interact with it. Uh, But help us to major on the majors and keep the gospel completely central in our focus of our conversations and of our hearts. Those times that we are tempted to grumble about whatever it is that we're facing And sometimes uh, with health issues and other things, there are significant things that we're facing. But I pray, God, that you would help us to feel encouraged because you have already taken care of our greatest need. You have removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. Something we are utterly helpless to do on our own. And I I pray, God, that that gospel-centered reminder would encourage us no matter what we're facing.